church on the trail. So happy to have y'all with us. Y'all sing with us this morning. This is the day that you have made. Whatever comes, I won't complain. For all my hope is in your name. And now your joy awaits my praise. I give thanks for all you have done And I will sing of your mercy and your love Your love is unfailing Lord, I am grateful Sing when I was down When I was down You brought me out Set my feet on higher ground So here I stand Faithfulness, my solid rock yeah. I give thanks for all you have done And I will sing of your mercy and your love Your love is unfailing Lord, I am grateful. I give thanks for all you have done. I won't forget all the battles you have won. Your love is unfailing. Lord, I am grateful. Sing as we lift our hands. As we lift our hands, the heavens open, heavens open. So let our lives declare the love our God has spoken over us. And as we lift our hands, the heavens open, heavens open. Lord, I am grateful. I give thanks for 
put your hands together. Not to us, but to your name lift. We lift up all praise. Not to us, not to us, but to your name lift. We lift up all praise. You deserve it. Not to us, but to your name.
when I don't feel that you're working You never stop, you never stop working You never stop, sing that out again Even when I don't see it, you're working Even when I don't feel it, you're working You never stop, you never stop working You never stop, you never stop working we needed to be reminded of that because sometimes we get in situations or we're dealing with stuff and it just if you've ever heard yourself think or say in the last week or in recent days there's just no way there's no way this is going to work out there's no way that uh that anything good could come out of this there's no way that i'm going to get the help i need then what we just sang was for you I know it was for me I think it was for all of us that even when we don't see it and even when we don't feel it God is working I think we need to sing that again can we sing that part and then whatever part you think we should sing but I, let's just pray God thank you for reminding us because we forget Lord we're sorry but we forget that you promised 
that you would never leave us or forsake us. And you went on. Your scripture also promises that you will make you make a way. You can lead us along paths that we don't even see. You'll make ways that we can't even figure out. But that you will lead us and you will guide us in your steadfast love. You'll guide us to your holy place. And so, Lord, we need you to guide us. And we're going to sing it again. And we're going to declare it, Lord. We're going to speak it because it's our truth today. It's our truth that you've spoken to us and promised to us that regardless of what we're dealing with, you are the one who will make a way for us. You are the one who will keep every promise you made. And Lord, you will guide us and lead us through the dark times in our life. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, we speak it and we sing it today because we believe it in Jesus' name. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. praise band didn't they do a great job leading us this morning thank you welcome please have a seat we thank everybody we're glad that you're here thank you for making our church on the trail worship gathering part of your weekend we also want to welcome all our friends who are checking in live online or watching this video uh, via YouTube or, or watching at some point in the future we're glad you guys have tuned in we hope you enjoy it and we hope you'll use the comment thread on YouTube and on Facebook Live to let us know where you're watching and worshiping from. And, uh, and, and we'd, we'd be glad to hear that. Thank you again for being with us. If you are here with us 
in-house, and perhaps you're new to Church on the Trail. Maybe this is your very first time to be here, or maybe one of your first few times. And if you've never received one of these, this is a welcome packet. It has information kind of behind the scenes, lets you know what Church on the Trail is all about. And if you've never received one of these, and you're new to Church on the Trail, raise your hand. We'd like to get one of these in your hand. This is our welcome packet, and we want to make sure everybody gets one. Raise your hand if you need one. And uh, we want to let everybody know that in the welcome packet and also in the seat back right in front of you, you're going to find what we call our connection card. The connection card is something that we set up so that you could communicate with Church on the Trail and connect with us. So we encourage you, utilize the connection card. Grab it out of the seat back in front of you. Let us know if you have a prayer request or need some information or just interested about Church on the Trail or maybe if you're visiting with us for the first time. And then what you do is you take your connection card and as you leave this morning, you drop it off at our connections desk, which is just outside the entrance doors to our building. And if you're visiting with us for the first time, then you get a fabulous prize. That's right. We have a free gift for you, a major award that we would love to put into your hands as a way of saying thank you for coming to be a part of our worship gathering. Now, if you are a part of our gathering by watching online, whether it's live today or at some point in the future, we'd encourage you to go to churchonthetrail.org and click connect. And you can uh, connect with us and do one of those connection cards online. You could communicate with us that way. At this time during our gathering, we like to pause and remind everyone that if you choose to worship the Lord by giving an offering or ties to Church on the Trail, you can still do that. Now, we don't pass the bucket. We, we uh, don't feel like that's the, the, the smart or safe thing to do uh, during the time of COVID. So uh, we want to remind you that you can still worship by giving. And there are three ways that you can do that on the, on the walls of our building here and in the, uh, in the hallway as you exit. There are black boxes. There are secure places you can drop your offering. Uh, you can also use the giving kiosk in the hallway, or you could go to churchonthetrail.org and click the give button, and then you're able to worship because when we give to the Lord through Church on the Trail, it is an act of worship. So I want to take just a moment, pause for prayer, and uh, we're going to ask the Lord's blessing on all the offerings and tithes that are given either here in person or online. And then we'll proceed with the rest of our service. So pray with me, if you will. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for meeting us during this time of worship. Thank you for reminding us that you are our way maker. We really needed to hear that today. Lord, we ask your blessing on the offerings that will be given to you through offerings that are given right here now today or all throughout the week. Lord, receive these as our worship to you. We trust you with our resources, Lord, and we ask you to take what we give and use that to make a difference in the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not going to scream now. So, good morning. Uh, 
My name is Ed Griffin Egan. I'm one of the pastors on our staff uh, at Church on the Trail. I am uh, thankful that you're here. <clears throat> I think God has ordained every tiny to be in every seat that is out there um, with a plan, with a purpose. Um, I, I hope and I pray, and my prayer all week was, and it always is, that Lord, will you bring the people here physically gathering that you want to speak to, uh, and the people that are watching, you know, watching on YouTube or Facebook, that they would be the people that you want to hear your message, and it's always every week. Lord, don't let me mess up what it is that you're trying to do. Whatever message you're trying to get across, please get me out of the way and get it done. And so I, it's really like that every week. Now we are, um, we started a few weeks ago a walkthrough, we're calling it Unashamed, uh, a walkthrough the, the Paul's letter to the Roman church. Let me say this real quick. If you don't have a worship guide, um, if you'd raise your hand and, and somebody will get one in your hands. <laughs> but we started this walk through Romans. The name of the message series is, uh, is Unashamed. We veered for a couple of weeks with the, the, the resurrection celebration on the land and then a couple other things that we veered away from that, but we're back on it today. And uh, we're back in Romans, and we're beginning in chapter 2. And I preface all this with saying the first and second uh, chapter of Romans, they're tough. Um, I mean, they're just sort of tough chapters. And so we're, we're starting in uh, chapter 2 today and really going to be in about the first five verses. We're kind of doing the first half of chapter 2 with a focus on the first five verses. So I want to get those first five in front of you first. Paul writes, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on, uh, on another you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume, and that word presume, it's almost like, or are you counting on? So, or do, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Y'all, Paul, he knew that ultimately at the end of the day, all kinds of different people are going to hear his letter. They're going to hear his letter. They're going to read his letter. You know, it would be Roman citizens. It would be transplanted Jews. It would be races of different kinds of Gentiles. It would be former Jewish converts, and it would be unbelievers. And in chapter 1 of Romans, uh, he condemns, in verse 29 of chapter 1, he condemns all manner of unrighteousness. And then he gives this list of 20 descriptors, maybe, different, um, different sins, so to speak, uh, of what all manner of unrighteousness looks like. Um, and, and so then... Paul's letter was read in that Roman church. And it was no doubt, after he lists this laundry list of sort of um, sins, heads are nodding. And they're like, yeah, man, put it on them. Lay it on them. You know, he's laying this hammer down in chapter 1 of, of idol worship and of, of homosexual practices and of lawlessness. And he calls it all manner of unrighteousness and wickedness. But what surprises his listeners there was when he turned on them. And in effect, he says, you ain't got no excuse. He said, you're just as bad as they are. 
You just don't know that you're just as bad as they are. You're right in the same bucket of sin as they are. So Paul's emphasis, and it really kind of permeates all of his letters, is that nobody, nowhere is good enough to save himself. And if you and I want to avoid uh, the penalty, if we want to avoid the punishment, if we want to avoid uh, uh, eternity separated from the Lord, and if we want to, to, to live eternally with Christ, we got to depend solely on God's grace. And that's true whether we've been in this life, whether we've been murderers or molesters or whether we've been hardworking, uh, honest citizens of the world. And, you know, Paul is not discussing here some hierarchy of sin. He's not discussing whether some sins are worse than, than other sins. Any sin ought to drive us uh, to, to a dependence on Christ for our salvation. And every one of us in this room and out that door have sinned repeatedly. Um, and, and we've got to we got to embrace that salvation comes only through faith in Christ. And so where in chapter 1 Paul is making this case against the ungodliness and wickedness of, man, of men, in this part of chapter 2 he's making a case against the person, and I'm going to call this person a moralist, M-O-R-A-L-I-S-T, a moralist. He's making this case against that person. And in the eyes of the Bible, a moralist is a dude that lives a moral life, a clean life. But then he judges all the other folks because they don't live like he thinks that they ought to live. Does that make sense to you? The moralist is, is condemning the other folks because they're not living the way he thinks that they ought to live. He's moral. He's just. He's upright. He's a good, decent, honorable kind of guy. He's got strong values. He's got strong standards. He's got uh, strong principles. He's well-disciplined, and he's able, whatever sort of self-control somebody can have, this guy's probably got self-control. He lives like everybody else thinks that he should. He knows right from wrong, and he probably lives that. He, he, he knows how to behave, and he probably behaves that way. In the eyes of society, the moralist is really just what a person ought to be. He's a good neighbor. He's an excellent worker. He provides for his family, and he is really an ideal citizen. But he criticizes all the time. He finds fault all the time, and he condemns. He's judging people all the time. That is the fatal flaw of the moralist. And everyone in this room, put me in the front of the line, can easily become that guy if we put ourselves up on this throne as the judge. Anytime that we judge another person, what we're really declaring is that we live by a separate set of rules. We're more moral than the next guy. We're better than they are. We're more righteous than they are. And that we ultimately are more acceptable to God in God's eyes than they are. Judging like that, you're really saying, I'm right and he's wrong. I succeed and he fails. Therefore, Lord, look at me but ignore him. Draw near to me but reject him. Approve me, approve me but condemn him. And so really simply put, when we judge like that, y'all, we are raising ourselves up and we're lowering them. We are exalting ourselves, and we're demeaning other folks. 
in the eyes of God, it ain't right. It's a sin. It is being self-righteous. It is being prideful. It's being self-reliant. And it's being arrogant. It is inexcusable. And he condemns this guy. He condemns himself because he's doing the very same thing that they are. Verse 1 says, therefore what? You have no excuse. You have no excuse. That's what he said to them. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, you've heard it said, and he's, he does this six times in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. But in verse 27, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In God's eyes, sin is a matter, and we talked about this a lot, sin is a matter of the heart and the mind and not just the act. The thoughts and the desires uh, that we have can make us just as guilty as the act itself. God knows that, that many people would carry out their thoughts if they just had the opportunity to carry them out. My wife Susan's talking to a friend the other day about her daughter's boyfriend. And her friend said about her daughter's boyfriend, he was only as faithful as his next opportunity. Think about that. How... How condemning is that? He's only as faithful as his next opportunity. So God knows the heart, and God knows the mind, and God knows the thoughts. And sin, whether it's in our thoughts or in our heart or in our acts in public, in all of that, it falls short of God's glory. Every single one of us in this room stand before God guilty. So the moralist, the person who judges, is as guilty as the one who being judged, and that is why we don't need to be constantly running around on a fault-finding mission, criticizing and judging people all the time. And then Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, in the beginning of chapter 7, he said, judge not that you not be judged, uh, be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Now, that doesn't mean, y'all, that we don't need a, a court system, that we don't need a judicial system. It doesn't mean that we don't need discipline to exist in our, um, in our homes or in our organizations or in our churches. Scripture doesn't, does teach that we need discipline and structure and justice, but it does mean that we don't need to be constantly walking around with this critical eye slamming everybody for their faults. What would the world look like if all of us could figure out how to do what James says when he says to tame the tongue? What would it look like if we did that? I would say it would look a whole lot better. Now jump into verse 2. This is Romans uh, 2, verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man... You judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 2 says, the judgment of God rightly falls. That's the ESV translation. The New King James says the judgment of God is according to truth. His judgment is right. 
It's always right. It's always just. It's based on fact. It's going to be executed, God's judgment, with perfect justice. His judgment is exactly what it should be. Nothing more, nothing less, because it is based on what really happens. It's based on what the facts are, y'all. It's based on what actually takes place, and it's based on what a person really is within their heart. God knows the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. God is truth, therefore is, he judges according to truth. It'll be perfect. It'll line up, his judgment will line up perfectly with who we are. That was a long introduction. I want to give you four points. Really four points about the moralist. Number one is this. He thinks, he's convinced that he is going to escape. The moralist is convinced that he is going to escape. He may not think it, but he's just like everybody else. Sinful and, and short of God's glory. And yet he jumps over, all over, and criticizes and judges the folks whose failures get exposed, and he thinks that he will escape. He forgets that God sees inside of the human heart and that God will ultimately judge man. He'll judge man for the lust of the flesh, for the lust of the eyes, and for the pride of life. Because all of it can go um, in one of those three buckets. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 says this in verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So number one, he thinks he's going to escape it all. Number two, the moralist thinks that, that God is too good to punish. When this guy thinks of God, he, all he thinks about is the riches of God's goodness, his kindness and his grace and his love. He thinks about the, the God's mercy, the way God holds back uh, and controls his justice. He thinks about the riches of God's long-sufferingness, his being patient and slow to anger and slow to judge sin. That's all that he thinks about. And of course, y'all, God is good and God is kind and God is merciful and God is overwhelmingly patient. But what the moralist completely misses is that God, and y'all don't miss this, man, that God's goodness is not a blank check to sin. Of course he's good, and of course he's kind, and of course he's merciful, and Lord knows he's patient with us, totally patient with us, but that goodness is not a blank check to sin because that goodness doesn't condone sin, it doesn't indulge sin, and it does not overlook sin. His goodness is to lead us to self-awareness, and really his goodness is to lead us to repentance. The fact that God would even consider forgiving us, it ought to drive us right down to our knees begging for his forgiveness. And if we go on sinning, just doing it over and over, thinking that he's just going to overlook all of that, what we're doing is shaking our fist at him, shaking our fist at his goodness, and, and mocking him, really, that goodness ought to drive us to our knees. If we do that, we are messed up. We're mistaken. Grace and forgiveness are not a license to sin. Paul says that in many different ways in his letter. Of course grace. Of course grace. But that's not just a license to sin. God is going to judge 
and his judgment's going to be in truth. So number two, the moralist thinks, believes, that God is just too good to punish. And then number three, the moralist thinks, believes, that man can be good enough for God to accept. He thinks that God is out there looking for, for the good in man and that inside of us is enough good for God to accept. The moralist, this guy Paul's talking about, thinks that God's goodness puts a big stamp of approval on your and my, our good works or our good thoughts, our good behavior, our, our good feelings, our, our good nature, and maybe even our good efforts. That You know, everybody gets a trophy because God says, well, you tried. And yeah, God is pleased. I believe he is pleased with whatever, whatever good that we can bring to the table, which is little, right? But what the moralist misses is that God's goodness is perfect. God's goodness is the bar, right? So how, on my best day ever, with that as the bar, anything that I would do or think is just filthy rags because it's not, the bar is not me, right? And the bar is not Lonnie. Like Lonnie's goodness becomes the bar. So all I got to do is be a I just got to be a little gooder than Lonnie. I just got to run a little faster than Lonnie. The lion's chasing me. I just got to beat him by a little bit, right? That's not it. God's perfectness is the bar. And so anything that I could ever bring to the table falls short of that because the Lord cannot approve of any imperfect work, any foul thoughts, any sinful behavior, any of that. He can only accept perfection, and none of us are perfect. We're not perfect in nature, we're not perfect in thought, and we're not perfect in behavior. So therefore, all of us are unacceptable to God. No man is good enough to be acceptable to God, no matter how good he is. On our best day, on your best day, on my best day, we're not good enough. The goodness of God is there to lead us into repentance to turn to him for righteousness, not to declare our own self-righteousness. And I'd say this, and this is a little redundant, but the simple fact that God allows us the opportunity to repent, it ought to have us confessing our, 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 our imperfections and our self-righteousness and to seek his righteousness, and his righteousness is only found in Jesus Christ. And honestly, most people think at the end of the day that they're good enough for God to approve of them. They have never dreamed that God would ever reject them when everything is said and done. And what they fail to see is that God's judgment is based on truth, on the truth, the truth of what a, what a person's thoughts and motives are and what is really inside of their mind and their heart. And so if we take those three sort of things and we add those up, the result is that the moralist hardens his heart against the judgment of God because he refuses to repent. He just cannot accept the fact that, that, that he is not good enough for God to approve of him. He can just not accept the fact that God's goodness and love would ever condemn him. Look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
And y'all, it is like he doesn't even know it. He doesn't even know it. He doesn't have a clue. He has no earthly idea. He thinks that he's fine and he's good with God because he's a do-gooder. And in reality, he's a powder keg about to blow up, and he's just so clueless. And y'all, it's fixing to get real. That is so particularly true in the Bible Belt. It's so true in the Bible Belt. Down here in the South, when Mom and them took you to church every Sunday, you grew up in the church wearing all the right clothes and acting all the right ways and, and saying all the right churchy sort of language and giving all these little hugs, love you. Meanwhile, on Monday, you just stabbed them in the back. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, later on in verse 21, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And didn't we do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Look, Jesus wasn't talking to an atheist. He wasn't talking to an agnostic when he said that. He wasn't talking to the dude with a pentagram tattooed to his forehead worshiping Satan. He was talking to the moralist. He was talking to the elitist. He was talking to all of the religious folks. He was talking, look, those people, quote, religion was so deeply embedded in their daily lives that gave them this full confidence that their good works somehow built a resume that was a ticket into heaven. They knew their religion. They did not know their religion. They knew their religion, but they missed the Redeemer who's standing right in front of them. Like, are you kidding me? Have you missed the Redeemer that is standing right in front of you in the name of family and tradition in America? And meanwhile, Jesus is standing in front of you, and, and you don't see it. Y'all, verse 22 in our world today, is it still on the screen? Yeah. Verse 22 in our world would be like this. Didn't we say a blessing before dinner every night? Didn't we vote our values? Lord, didn't we wear a new dress to church on Easter? Lord, didn't we believe that prayer ought to be allowed in the schools? Didn't we go to church? Didn't we give money to the church? Lord, didn't we get teary-eyed when Lee Greenwood sang God Bless the USA? Didn't we have a Bible on the coffee table? Maybe we had two Bibles on the coffee table. Lord, we had all that. You know, did, Lord, didn't we want America to get back to its Christian roots? Didn't we only listen to Christian radio? Y'all, the root of the self-righteousness is the belief that your own works justify you before God. Self-righteousness believes that you're good enough or you can be if you try hard enough. And there are lots and lots of folks that function every day like they have no need for saving. But God has given us one mediator and one atonement, and there's not some exception clause in there. I want to introduce you to a family. <laughs> Billy and Liz Camp. I'll tell you a story, kind of a long story. Some of you have seen the movie, obviously, and some of you hadn't. Billy and Liz Camp, and by most standards, they're good folks, man. They do things as a family. They, they try to keep their kids involved in all kinds of activities. They're considering trading their SUV for a minivan, and that's something Liz said she'd never do. They do their best to eat dinner together as a family. 
when the kids' schedules permit it. And when the dinners do actually happen, they always hold hands around the dinner table and they say the blessing. Not like those heathen Smith people across the street. And when it's her turn to pick the prayer, their four-year-old daughter, Johanna, and you know, Johanna's a biblical name because they want it, it means God is gracious. So little Johanna, whenever she gets to say the blessing, she always picks the brown cow song. You know, we thank the brown cow for the chocolate milk. We thank the pig, oink, oink, for the bacon on the grill. We thank the egg for the chicken and the chicken for the eggs and God for our daily bread. Amen. She learned, little Johanna learned this prayer at her faith-based preschool where she goes twice a week while her mom heads over to the gym for her Pilates class. On Facebook, a recent family photo taken on the front steps of the church, it's got more than 100 likes and it's got dozens of comments about their beautiful family. The day before that, they'd gone shopping to get the kids new matching outfits for church. Biff, you know, the son's name is Biff. That's a good old American name. He wasn't thrilled about having to match his outfit with his baby sister's, but Liz told him that he could change clothes as soon as they got home. By the way, did you see what the Smith family kids had on for Easter last year? Oh, my gosh, really? The camps are in their mid-30s. They go to church every now and again because they're just so darn busy, y'all. The extended family on Billy's side had a, has a, a mountain cabin, and they try to get up to that mountain cabin uh, for the weekend whenever the weather is okay. And it's also a super real big hassle to get the kids out the door ready and out the door on Sunday morning. But crazy enough, they somehow get everybody ready for school every day. Now, when they're in town, they try hard to go to church because it's so important to Papa and Nana. Papa's a third-generation member of the church. He's taught in the same adult Sunday school class for 30 years. He sings in the choir every now and again, but he, he doesn't like some of the new music that they've been doing since the church hired that new guy. Papa serves on four committees, never misses a Sunday. Nana's entire social life revolves around the church, and she's always so thrilled to see the grandkids get there so she can show them off to her friends. She and the other ladies that teach the, the kids' Sunday school class tell little Johanna and little Biff that they changed their mom's diaper when she was in the nursery. You know, church is a good thing to the camp, especially for the kids, because it's a place where they can learn good moral lessons. And when they finally do make it, they admittedly feel kind of good about themselves, y'all. And that's what it's all about, is, is for you to feel good about yourself. You know, and it gives the kids a chance to wear their new monogram church clothes. You know, being seen as a family that doesn't take the kids to church would be embarrassing to Nana. And the passive-aggressive comments at the family gatherings would probably be unbearable. Even when the camps lived in a different state because of Billy's job, Nana would call Liz every Monday on the phone and ask whether she took my grandkids to church. And that drove Liz bananas. Now, being back in the same town... She can't even lie about their church attendance because going to a, a different church in the same town than Nan and Papa went to would be worse than not going to church at all. Plus, the experience at church is just so darn comfortable. During the worship service, this new pastor, he speaks for about 20 minutes about loving others. Jesus is portrayed as a great example of this since he helped the poor, and that's when the pastor gives a shameless plug to the, their Habitat for Humanity ministry 
You know, the pastor doesn't ever talk about sin. He doesn't ever talk about repentance. He never talks about the blood of Christ. But he gives a super motivational and inspirational message as usual. And then after church, the, the camps always uh, head over to Papa and Nana's house for some lunch. Uh, and the kids can't wait to change into their regular clothes. And, you know, Bill, Billy and Liz have found that they fight less if they occasionally give and sacrifice four hours on a Sunday morning to the parents because it doesn't seem to really impact any of the rest of their life. That, y'all, is the life of the typical cultural Christian family. And if you ask them about their faith, they really wouldn't be uncomfortable. But they would respond with answers like about going to church and about doing good for people and about being good folks. Church is a place where, where uh, basic social expectations are met in the name of morals and family and tradition. And that is understandable since today the idea of church isn't much linked anymore to belief in Jesus Christ or any demand that the scriptures would place on people who claim to be Christian. It is super important for this family that, that they be viewed as good people. You know, the way that they portray themselves on Facebook. They want to be seen as the well-rounded American family that goes to church. And they're not defensive or awkward when it comes to questions about their belief. They certainly believe in God. As far as they're concerned, they always have and they always will. But if the conversation moved to questions about Jesus or salvation or the gospel, it may be a different story. They might nod and smile, but suddenly they would probably feel awkward because they'd be clueless as to what Jesus or the gospel or the cross has anything to do with them personally. They already see themselves as Christians. They grew up in church. Their whole story begins with and ends with they grew up in church. Salvation is only for the crazy dude on the street corner screaming about it or the, the religious uh, types. Now, y'all may sit there and you may assume that the most tragic part of this story about this fictitious family is their cluelessness about the gospel. But there's something way deeper than that. And you know what it is? It is the tragic, like, I can't even tell you the tragicness in this. It's that they don't actually believe they have any need for Jesus. They don't have any need for him. They have nothing to be saved from in their minds. Jesus saves. From what? They, they see that they have no need whatsoever. They have had tons of exposure to all the Christian lingo and the Christian radio you know, in fact, they were at church as recently as Easter. They know about Jesus, and they would, they would say, quote, their faith is important to them. So here's what I'm telling you, man. This beautiful, moral American family is, quote, Christian without Christ. They're Christian like without Christ. I guess that we could call them almost Christian. But you know, what, you know what the deal is with an almost Christian? An almost Christian is as lost as the atheist. An almost Christian is as lost as the guy with the pentagram worshiping Satan. 
There's not special places. They're all busting the gates of hell wide open, y'all. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Right? By, by, look, man, that is the gospel, y'all. It is the gospel. And there's nothing that we can do again to be good enough. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jump down to Romans 2.16. It's the end of this passage. It says, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. By Christ Jesus. God will judge through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. The gospel includes this, this wonderful message that though judgment is inevitable... Y'all understand that, do you not? Judgment is inevitable. But it will be conducted through Jesus Christ's mediation. Here's what I mean by that. For those of us that trust in Christ, for those of us that trust in Christ for righteousness, God's judgment does not include the fear of punishment. Right? I got a filthy sinner. But when I accept Christ's righteousness, as undeserving as I am, this is a metaphor that it, it works in my brain. And you've heard the term that Christ's robe wraps. His white robe wraps around me. And guess what his robe is? It's opaque, right? And so when God looks at me prior to that robe being on me, he sees the filthy rags, which are all I bring to the table. But when I say yes to Christ and that white robe wraps around me, the Father looks at me and what does he see? Jesus. He doesn't see me. He doesn't see my filth. He sees Christ's righteousness, y'all. That is the gospel. And so when he, when the judgment is mediated through Christ, that is what that means. And we don't have any, we should be fearless. We should have no fear of punishment. None. Later on in chapter 8, this is I'm going to leave you with this. Later on in chapter 8, y'all, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. That is what Paul is talking about in chapter 2. If you are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. That verse doesn't say there's a little bit of condemnation. There's a little bit. So you ought to be scared a little bit. No. It says there is therefore now no condemnation. When you say yes, none. It's taken off the table, y'all. And so for those that are what? In Christ Jesus. So the are you today in Christ Jesus? Or have you been checking all these boxes for 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years? That family that was up on the screen, they're checking all the boxes. Lost as a goose and having the vaguest idea because they, they're good folks. They're good folks. But they're just as lost as the devil worshiper. So what? So have you kind of thought about that or have you not thought about it? Have you just said, I'm a good guy. I spent 37 years like that. I'm a pretty good guy. I ain't worshiping the devil and I can run a little bit faster than Lonnie. 
listen, man, you just don't know. We had somebody in our homeless ministry. And we got a guy that is in a hospice right now. One of the first guys we met years ago. And we had somebody in, the, and, and you would have heard this guy pray because he prayed a lot, this homeless guy. He prayed a lot when we before we would eat uh, at the stop where he was at. And sweetest prayers, like the most beautiful prayers, were they not? Beautiful prayer. I'm sitting there thinking, this dude is a believer for three or four or five years. Beautiful prayer. Lord of Lord and King of Kings. That's what he used to say all the time. So he's in hospice, and we had somebody in our homeless ministry that was visiting him two weeks ago. And in the course of that conversation with him, some little cues or clues or whatever kind of came up, and, and the question was, um, you know, are you right with the Lord? And the guy said, I don't know. I don't know is a no, by the way. Like, I don't know is a no. And he said, I don't know. And this person in, our, in the homeless ministry was in shock because the prayers were so sweet. I mean, they were so sweet. Were they not, Susan? Sweetest ever. And he said, I don't know. About an hour and a half later, he knew. About an hour and a half later, he gave his life to Christ laying in the bed at hospital because of somebody in, in the homeless ministry, that ought to get claps. If anything, um, because somebody had, you know, somebody in the ministry cared enough to have a conversation with the guy and maybe had discernment enough to ultimately to ask the question. And he said, I don't know. But he does know now. I mean, y'all, are you in Christ? Day. Because if you're not in Christ today, and if your answer is you can be good enough, or if your answer is, well, I've always considered myself a Christian, what does that mean? I mean, you grew up going to church? Doesn't mean going to church is a bad thing. Of course it doesn't. Doesn't mean growing up in church is something wrong. Of course it doesn't mean that. But none of that, none of, none of those things equals I'm saved. What happened at this 2,000 years ago and our accepting that and our repenting of our own sin by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone so all I would say to you is today if you're not in Christ if the answer to the question would be I don't know I don't know is no it is repent repent turn away from it and yet don't set yourself up like tomorrow you're going to be sinless because you're not. But you will be wrapped in that robe. You want to get wrapped in that white robe? I do. So repent and believe that that death on that cross took care of it. Ask him to save you and you will be saved. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the truths that are in your word. Even the super difficult truths. Maybe, maybe we, we are thankful for those even more. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your gospel. We thank you that you loved us enough when we were a thousand percent unlovable to die on that cross to take care of it. Lord, let us suppress our, our self. Let us die to ourselves. Let us see a fork in the road where one, one side leads to me and one side leads to you. 
let me just close off the other side. Let everything I do and everything that I think, let it all be about you. Lord, I pray for the people today that said yes to your offer because they're going to walk out of this building wrapped in that robe. And so, Lord, that, that, that just, the heavens will be just screaming with laughter and joy. So, Father, we ask you to bless the people that are represented here. Lord, we ask you for protection in their lives, for health. We ask you for protection in their lives, for their spiritual walk. We ask that you would help us to grow in your likeness. Lord, I pray for churches all over Columbus that are just starting to, to meet and gather together again. They don't even know how much they missed it until they gather today. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, and if you did say yes to that offer today, and if you, or if you just have a concern or if you had a need, in the back corner back here is our prayer team, and they would be tickled and thrilled to death to talk to you, to pray with you, to just bear burdens. Y'all, we, we need to bear each other's burdens. And so I'd ask you to let us know anything you need to let us know on a connection card. You can give it to them, or you can go back and talk to them, or you can take it to the Connections desk. Thank you. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Yeah.
Y'all have a great week. We'll see you back here next Sunday.